It's good to be together. Um, I don't take any Sunday for granted these days. It seems like um, if you uh, haven't been sick, you know somebody who's been sick or you are sick and you're coming off the men's. So um, I got another kid in my house that hit the fan this morning. And so, um, you know, we're in parcel force, the Shelton household, as opposed to full force. And um, it's a bummer. So I'm glad to be here. Um, We're continuing our journey through the book of Acts. Um, If you've missed any of the last couple of weeks, I would encourage you to go and find the sermons on Spotify. I know that you'll be served by that. Several weeks ago, uh, Dustin talked about the fruits of the Spirit, and then uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Pat finished off Acts chapter 9, and then last week, Josh uh, walked us through Acts chapter 10. And uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 11 tonight, and if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open uh, to that place. And as you get there, I want to do a quick recap, as quickly as one can, through the first 10 chapters of the action-packed book of Acts. Jesus is with his disciples, and He encourages them to wait and stay in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. And as a result of the coming Holy Spirit, that they are going to be His witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus miraculously ascends into heaven, and His disciples gather together in Jerusalem, and they're obedient, and they're waiting together, and they're searching the Scriptures, and they're praying. That's what they're doing. And then all of a sudden, like a great wind, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the followers of Jesus, and that indwelling is expressed by followers of Jesus speaking known languages unknown to them. And individuals who have gathered for this festival in Jerusalem hear the amazing truths spoken by ordinary people. The Spirit of God draws them, they repent and believe, and the church explodes. Amazing signs and wonders are done in the community of God. People are healed, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, and people are saved. And opposition arises. Peter and John are arrested, they're thrown and jailed, and charged not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And what's their response? In Acts chapter 4, verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. God's community continues to grow, and as individuals sell their possessions, they give to those in need They have all things in common as they orient their lives around this one man named Jesus. Specific men are raised up to serve the body of believers called deacons, who not only faithfully serve the body, but boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. One deacon, Stephen, is murdered for his faith and proclamation. And as the opposition against the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to increase, there's outright persecution against the church. But God's plan to use his people to be his witness to all places is not yet thwarted. 
in the midst of persecution, many of the people of God are scattered from Jerusalem, and as they move away from this place, they take the saving gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Philip, another deacon, takes the message of hope to the region of Samaria. Where the gospel is proclaimed, people repent and believe, but the Spirit does not yet come on them. And Peter and John, who are back in Jerusalem, they hear about the ongoing work that the gospel is being proclaimed and people are getting saved, and so they venture up to Samaria. They lay hands on them and they pray, and the exact same thing that happened back to, the, uh, to them back in Acts chapter 2 happens to the Sumerians. The gospel continues to expand into greater parts of Judea and Samaria, engaging with greater and greater Jewish opposition. A Pharisee by the name of Saul determined to stomp out the way, journeys to a place called Damascus. But God meets him on the road because he has other plans. Saul sees the resurrected Christ with his own eyes and is converted and begins to preach that Jesus is the Christ. It is here that we pick up our time this evening. God has just used Peter by giving him a dream and sending an angel to a Gentile Roman soldier, an unlikely friend, where Peter proclaims the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles, the Spirit comes upon them, the same exact expression in Acts chapter 2, and now he is headed back to Jerusalem to report all of what God has done in Acts chapter 11. And that is where we start our time this evening. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to read the first 18 verses together. Starting in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven. By its four corners... And it came down to me, looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again to heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and, were, and we entered the man's house. 
And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all of your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, who, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This evening's text is a recap of the events that we looked at last week. If you weren't here, don't do it now, but later, jump on Spotify and hear Josh's message on that. Josh got the blessing and the burden of going first. I am here this evening, and I have the blessing and the burden of going second on a similar event. Um, The journey of preparing a sermon goes like this for me. The first step is figuring out what I'm going to say. And then shortly after I dig in, that changes from that challenge, what am I going to say, to what am I not going to say. That really is the beauty of God's Word. It is a deep and endless well. And so the hope this evening is to try and articulate many of the same points, maybe even some of the same points as last week, hopefully in a different way. And so the roadmap for this evening, I've entitled the sermon, Declared Clean. Declared Clean. And I want to ask three overarching questions around that idea. The first is, who established this clean and unclean distinction? Why was that done, and what's the context around that? That's question number one. Question number two is, who determines what is clean and unclean? And third and last, what does it mean to be declared clean, and what are the implications for you and I? Okay, so in uh, rapid succession, right, declared clean, who established Who determines and why does that all matter for you and I today? Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the church in Jerusalem heard that the Gentiles received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Now, the text uses the phrase criticize to communicate to us, as the readers, the significant objection that individuals had about who and how Peter just spent his time over the last several days. This objection are not outside of the camp of believers. They are objections raised inside the body of believers there in Jerusalem, more than likely a group of saved Men and women, maybe men who were religious leaders that still held strict custom to their Jewish laws. 
Now, before we come down too hard on this group of individuals, let's remember two important realities. The first is that it took a vision from the Lord to help prepare the heart of Peter to accept this shift of thinking not only a few days ago. And that's because of the significant place that these dietary laws played in the life of Jews up to this point. These customs and laws had their roots all the way back in the Old Testament, much of which can be found in Leviticus chapter 11, if you want to go there in your own time and read more about it. Animals, such as bats and eagles and vultures, are all put into the category of being unclean. While animals that have a uh, parted hoof and chew their cud, like goats and sheep and cows, hoorah, and fish and that have fins and scales are put into the clean category. Considering many of the known, now known truths of certain animals, like bats and vultures, and their propensity to carry diseases and illness, this was in many ways God's kindness to his people to care for their well-being. Absolutely. However, I would argue that the principal reason for these dietary laws established by God given to his people was a daily reminder of him being clean. And his call for his people to be clean and set apart. The distinction between clean and unclean was not a real moral category. These animals are actually unfit and therefore evil. These animals are actually profitable and are good. That's not what's going on. Instead, God uses this distinction to communicate the reality of himself and his people being set apart from the rest of the world. Set apart from other people groups that were not clean and therefore ate unclean things and participated in unclean ways. God established the distinction between clean and unclean animals as a pointed symbolic lesson for his people. It's actually a continued theme, right? through the Old Testament, that God is set apart. He is the clean one. And only clean things that can come into his presence. Consider the tabernacle, the separation between God's dwelling place and the many laws and practices necessary for even one man to come into that place. By following these dietary laws, the people of God show God as being distinct and set apart, ultimately pointing to our need in all areas of our lives to be clean, as he himself is clean. This clean and unclean distinction also separated God's people from the rest of mankind. Following these laws helped God's people understand the significant and purposeful otherness that both God and God's people ought to be in the world that they lived in. Commingling with, eating, touching, marrying, etc., 
outside of this clean distinction meant that you yourself became unclean and in turn needed to be cleansed prior to entering back into correct fellowship with God and God's people. But all of these dietary laws, like many of the good laws God established, were pointing to greater promises. They were helpful and good, but not complete. Jesus helps us understand this in Mark chapter 7, where he teaches that nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. See, Israel's diet, just like many of Israel's good laws, were pointing to better promises which were not fully understood until God in his kindness gave greater understanding. This was the hang-up for Peter, initially, at least. And for these other Christian brothers, they understood, at least in part, the lesson that God desired for them to understand. That you must be clean as God himself is clean, and to dwell, to ingest, to partake in the life that is marked as unclean means that you cannot be in the presence of that which is clean, ultimately excluding you from the presence of God himself. It was God that established this distinction to help communicate his otherness, his separation from that which is unclean, and called his people to be set apart, to be holy as he is holy, to stand in stark contrast to the rest of the world, unclean people eating unclean things. That's why Peter has an odd vision of a great sheet being dropped down from heaven in Acts chapter 10. That's why it's recounted here in Acts chapter 11, verse 4 through 9. Let's look at that one more time. Peter's recounting this, and he says, But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision something like a great sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me looking At it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. What? Like, I read that, if you, if you don't have, like, some deep Old Testament understanding, like, what just happened? Like, I understand, I read, I read the words, I understand that there's a sheet that comes down from heaven, and there's animals on this sheet, and a voice says, rise, kill, and eat. Bizarre, I would say, at the, at the least, But God is doing something here. God is taking his established distinction between clean and unclean food that was a symbolic reminder to his people that they are to be set apart and be clean. God established all that. 
Here in Acts chapter uh, 10 and the retelling of the events here in Acts chapter 11 to vividly bring unity for all people where there once was separation. See, God uses the same means to bring unity, declaring food as clean that he used back in the Old Testament to make a separation. Which leads us to question number two. Who determines what is clean and unclean? If God's the one that makes the distinction, who's the one that determines what is clean and unclean? And the simple answer is it's God. Verse 9. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. Consider this with me for a moment. God does two incredible things in this very small verse. First, he is the one that makes things clean. What God has made clean, if we were seeking and seeing, I would underline the word made. He is the one that declares and determines what is clean. And the second is that God determines that what he has made clean is clean. Do not call it common. He decides what he has made as clean as being clean. You get that? See, in this context of Peter and Cornelius, as Josh put it last week, Cornelius is a very unlikely friend. And God communicates to Peter that God has determined and declared that his gospel is for all peoples. No longer shall there be a clean and unclean distinction between uh, peoples that is distinguished by what they eat. But instead, the door to the gospel of Jesus Christ is wide open to all because God has granted repentance that leads to life. And then to shut out all doubt, Peter tells the church in Jerusalem that the Spirit of God fell upon the Gentiles in the exact same manner as it had in the beginning. Verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. The beginning. Just like it happened back in Acts chapter 2. You remember that? It happened just like that. Acts chapter 8 in Samaria, you remember that? It happened just like that. Uniting all believers of all types of people as one people, God's people. And as Paul will later write in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, articulating that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And oh, the promises of our God. Verse 17. If then God gave the same gift 
to them as he had given to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, these men rightfully agree that if God granted them the same gift, who are they to stand in God's way? God established the clean and unclean distinction. It was he that determined to call them clean. Who are we to stand in his way? What's more, It is God that has granted repentance that leads to life, verse 18. It is not simply that God has now given access to the gospel for all peoples, but that through the washing and cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, all people can be found and declared clean in Christ. That is the gospel. That you and I were unclean before God, and God is perfect pure, and clean. And we cannot be in his presence. Our stains, blemishes were against him, and we have gone our own way. And God's word calls that rebellion, and that rebellion is against him. And as a result, we have been declared as unclean, unrighteous, and that alienates us from God. And God is right to punish that rebellion. But thanks be to God that because of Jesus' life, death, and glorious resurrection, all are welcome to the table of fellowship by the cleansing blood of Jesus for any who would believe. Because of Jesus' sacrifices, no believers are excluded from the Lord's table. Instead, all are equal heirs of promise. And this puts a new and a fresh understanding for me surrounding communion. That's what I was thinking about this. Communion is believers taking part in remembering and celebrating the death of Jesus as we eat the bread and the juice, which represents his body and his blood. We are ingesting the symbolic body of Jesus, which is the only real means to be clean. All other means, to eat or not to eat, point towards the fulfillment of what Jesus did on the cross. And what we remember and what we celebrate through the Lord's Supper, all of that has its ties back in the Old Testament thousands of years ago when God established this symbolic representation of clean and unclean food. First, he created distinction. Later, he brings unity and ultimately fulfilling all of that in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. Determining and declaring believers of Christ as clean. What a purposeful God we have. Emily and I were sitting there talking about that this morning. Like, we feel like we are intentional people. We want to be intentional people. And Emily told me, she's like, what a God 
who has intention. It just continues to boggle the mind and blow my mind as I see more and more of the connections of what God is up to as he expresses it in his word that he has been far ahead, so far ahead, establishing his purpose and in the proper time, like he is the means by which they are fulfilled and brought about. Determining and declaring individuals as his own, making them clean. So, we've looked at who established this clean and unclean distinction. We've looked at who determines things to be clean as, and, and unclean. And in closing, we're going to look at some of the implications and applications for us today. Josh shared some last week, two of which was that the gospel is very broad, that it is for all people, but that the gospel is also narrow. It's not religious piety or doing or not doing, of eating or not eating that grants you access to the Father. It is only by your faith and your changed identity as being declared clean individuals by God, who is the just and the justifier in the face of Jesus that grants us repentance that leads to life. It is that identity that is unfolding here before us in the pages of Acts. It is that identity that is countercultural, quite frankly, to these Jewish people. It is that identity that ought to be the principal mark for believers of Christ. The thing that ought to bind up individuals far greater than anything else. Far greater than political allegiance, one to Israel or that of Rome. Greater than any cultural values and practices, eating Jewish food or Roman food. It is that identity that is countercultural for us today, living in the amazingly polarizing times that we live in right now. Two broad questions that I feel like God has been stirring in my own heart as it relates to the beautiful unity that we have in Christ. The first question is, how do I view other people? The second is, how do people view me? How do I view other people? How do other people view me? I'm guilty of not having an identity as a Christ follower be the principal way that I see others, especially in the context of differencing opinions or conflict. It doesn't mean that we have to all think the same way or have all the same opinions, but when we disagree, we might ask the question, how impactful is that for you? Do you and I need to grow in seeing people as image bearers of God, either in one of two categories, in need of grace or standing in grace? 
Those are the only two categories. Ultimately, this test argues, this text argues, that we have the greatest unifying reality of all time. That if you call yourself a believer in Christ Jesus, and I do the same, we are bound up in something greater than, that, that, that does not exist in any other place. It's better than any sports teams that you and I might cheer for. It's greater than any hobby you and I might both like. It's greater than any political party that you and I might vote for. It's greater than the affinity of the school that we both send our kids to. Industries that we work in, stages of life that we share, our ethnicity, our cultural values, all of that. How do you see other people? On the flip side of that, how do you think other people see you? We don't want to spend too much time consumed by this question. It might be unhealthy. But as people think of you, as people think of Jason Shelton, What do they think about? I fear all too often I leave a different impression than I want to. I think people see other things. Wanting to be one that points people towards the amazing grace of Christ in my life, there are times I think people see other things. Maybe it's other passions because I'm a passionate guy. Maybe they see my arrogant faults. How do people see you? My prayer for myself, my family, this church, is that we would continue to grow in Christ-likeness, and specifically in this text, that we would see the amazing reality of being bound up in Christ. That he declares us as clean. And that is the greatest unifying pursuit that we could ever be a part of. I pray That others, how I see others, and how other people see me reflect that I actually believe that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you are great and greatly to be praised and What a God you are, that you saw fit to draw near to your creation that rebelled against you, and all the way back, eternity past, your word says, began to 
Think of a way in which you would bring us back into right relationship with yourself. And that you were going to do that through the face of your son Jesus. Through the shedding of his blood so that we might be clean. God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that in my own heart and in my own mind and in my own family and in this church, Lord God, that we would see and be marked by that principally. As we go through our day, as we do the things that we're responsible for, as we take care of the business at hand, Lord God, I want to be seen and I want to see others. First and foremost, as individuals that are either in need of grace or standing in your grace. God, I pray that you would just continue to um, fan into flame our affections for your gospel and what you've done. That in this room you have made foes in the family. That you have reconciled us with yourself and that you've reconciled us with one another. That we, by your grace, are united in the greatest cause of worshiping your name and making your name known. God, help us do that well for your glory and the good of your blood-bought people here in Greeley, in northern Colorado, and wherever you would take us. We love you. Grateful for the reality that you loved us first. Amen.